Support for the Triloquy Podcast comes from Primo Artists. Primo Artists is a top international classical music management agency with a selective roster of several of the world's finest classical artists, from rising stars to household names. Based in New York and founded in 2015 by industry veteran Charlotte Lee, Primo Artists is considered the most modern agency in the field. For more information on Primo Artists, visit their website, primoartists.com. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Happy Thursday, if you're tuning in on the day I've put this out. We're officially in November. The season is changing. I understand some folks have gotten snow already, including folks in my former abode over in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. So shout out to y'all, and uh, great to be here with y'all again. Shout out to the returning listeners. Couldn't do this without you. To the new listeners, Triloquy is a podcast that's built to decolonize classical music. Each week, I share some news from the field that shines a light on the subject of expanding dialogues and approaches to so-called classical music. I share conversations that I have with movers and shakers in the industry. And I close each week with a triloquy, which is uh, my ranting about something that I feel like I need to <laughs> rant about. For more information on triloquy, to explore past ep- episodes, and to donate, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In this week's triloquy, I'm going to talk a little about my opera plans for <laughs> the coming week and why I'm feeling a little dissonance. More on that later. Before that, I'm extremely excited to get a little medal with y'all. Rachel Barton Pine returns to the show alongside composer Earl Manian to talk about their recent recording of a metal-inspired violin concerto. It's really great, so I can't wait to share that. But for right now, I want to celebrate a chamber music ensemble that I learned about last week. Okay, so first of all, shout out to Katie Solomon, who's helped me book a lot of Triloquy guests over the years and for getting me and Dell tickets to see the Turtle Island String Quartet last week. Here's a little about them from their website if you haven't heard of them. It says, since its inception, in 1985, the Turtle Island Quartet has been a regular force, a singular force rather, in the creation of bold new trends in chamber music for strings. Winner of the 2006 and 2008 Grammy Awards for Best Classical Crossover Album, Turtle Island fuses the classical quartet aesthetic with contemporary American musical styles and by devising a performance practice that honors both, the state of the art has inevitably been redefined. So you can uh, learn more about them at their website. I'll have it linked in the description. Um, So I was sitting at Lincoln Center listening to them play and talk about their decolonized approach to music making. I always respond to uses of that word uh, in in concert spaces. And I had lots of thoughts. You know, it's easy for any of us to think that we have been solely carrying the flag for a new approach to classical music. Because, you know, when you think about it, there are so few of us out here doing it, at least relatively speaking. But after listening to their really phenomenal performance, and perspectives, it helped me realize that chamber music is in pretty good shape when it comes to artistic decolonization. I've 
you know, mentioned it many times on this show that Imani wins. Shout out to them. They actually um, have a concert tonight that I'm going to try to make it to. But anyway, Imani wins uh, was my entry point into music. They're the first group that I heard when I did a Yahoo search for bassoon almost 25 years ago as a youngster. Okay, so Turtle Island has been out here for even longer. And I wanted to make sure that they were on y'all's radar in case they haven't been because they weren't on mine. Here's a little bit of uh, what they offer up to the world. This is the Turtle Island Quartet performing a tune called The Second Wave. Isn't it refreshing to hear something like that coming from a string quartet? I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the concert that I attended. Again, shout out and thank you to Katie Solomon for hooking us up with those tickets. Okay, so the work is happening there in chamber music. Where the work isn't happening still is the orchestra. This is the thought process that I was getting into as I, you know, considered my work and hearing them expound on their approaches to decolonization. You know, that, that's that's where I got. The orchestra is what needs help. Yes, plenty of people are programming historical black composers and exposing audiences to something new within, you know, their comfortable frameworks. And that's another conversation, but largely it's the same old thing. Now, I know that y'all understand that I hate picking on these large institutions, but just to make my point, I have to hop over to the website of the New York Phil. And really the only reason I'm doing that, I wanted to be neutral. I Googled orchestra concert just to see what would pop up first. And what popped up first was the New York Philharmonic's website. So I uh, go over to nyphil.org and what pops up immediately? Yes, a promotion of their upcoming performances of Beethoven's violin concerto. I mean... What do you want from me? I don't I haven't been using the soundboard in in this latest season, but goodness gracious, what what is there for me to say? Is Beethoven's Violin Concerto a great piece? Of course it is. It used to be one of my favorite pieces to perform uh, due to the bassoon solos that are written throughout. I even got to play it with uh, Midori, the violinist Midori. So, you know, there it's not only some music I love, but some really great memories that uh, that I attach to that music. But that doesn't mean that we can't expand. Now, I can take a closer look at this concert that they're promoting uh, Beethoven's Violin uh, Concerto with. And I can see that Carlos Simon, shout out to Carlos Simon, he's getting a, a performance on this same concert and congratulations to him. But the concert is still billed in that traditional way. What the New York Phil wants its audiences to know is that Beethoven's music will be taking the stage as the main event, so there's no need to worry. Everything's going to be just as it's been. You can come comfortably. We won't challenge your ears. Everything is going to be fine. So what's my point? I guess my point is that I'm greatly inspired by how my work and talking about decolonization has manifestations in the field that even predate me, especially as I've been talking about in chamber music. But where we have to continue to push is with orchestral music and also the pipelines that feed orchestral music. I'm talking about conservatories and uh, schools of music and those sorts of institutions. Now, all of this presents a really important question, though, if you think about it. We can talk about pushing orchestras, but who exactly? are we pushing? What is the specificity of the work that has to be done? 
this is a, <laughs> a topic probably uh, better suited for a closing triloquy. But what I will say before we dive into this week's interview is that music directors need to put their foot down, especially up and coming music directors of color. I don't have a lot of conducting experience, but I can proudly say that every single concert and opera that I've conducted as an individual has centered blackness. That's just one of my rules. You will never see me on stage performing a Brahms symphony or doing any of that because I'm not interested in perpetuating that status quo. And I wish that more conductors specifically were in line with that a little bit more. If you're booked to conduct a show that perpetuate classical music norms, I feel like you're in the way. Chamber music is doing a great job of drawing the circle wider. It's going to take some tough conversations and maybe even turning down gigs to get orchestras to do the same thing, in my opinion. And there's just so much good music, exciting music, different music out there that we can expose to audiences beyond Beethoven's violin concerto, including <laughs> one of the violin concertos that um, the guests this week are going to uh, talk about. So it isn't completely hopeless, hopeless because you do have folks out here like Rachel Barton Pine and Earl Manian doing the work in a really... uh metal way, I'll say. So earlier this year, Rachel uh, was the featured violinist in a recording of a new work by Earl called Dependent Arising. As I mentioned, uh, this piece is metal inspired, so it draws out some different sounds and styles from the orchestra that you don't hear every day. This recording also includes a really nice recording of uh, one of Shostakovich's violin concertos, which, you know, set side by side, you can, you know, hear lots of similarities, how Shostakovich, even in his day in the early 20th century, was uh, pushing the needle. So I think it's a, a really phenomenal recording that I hope y'all will go out and listen to and also buy. I'll have a link uh, uh, to more information on the album in the description. So Earl, Rachel, and myself talk about this new recording, new music, generally speaking, and we also get into a, a little metal. So I hope y'all enjoy. To get us there, here's a sample uh, from Dependent Arising. This recording features Rachel Barton Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Our good friend Tito Munoz conducts. Shout out to Tito, shout out to Earl and Rachel, and shout out to y'all for taking a listen this week. Hope y'all enjoy. So for those of you who don't like, like if you go to my website, the bio is definitely not what you would normally read from a normal bio because a normal bio is so-and-so enjoys, uh, you know, so-and-so. First of all, they refer to themselves as a third person, right? Like, we and, do. When you're not, and, <laughs> and, you know, and also let me be real when you're not famous like me, right? Like you don't have a team. I have no team. My team is me. Like, you know, so it's like, you know, you have no team. And like, but everybody still writes into the third person. And like, I know it. We all went to school. We all know each other. Come on, dude. What are you doing? Right. So it's like, it's like so-and-so enjoys a diverse career with blah and has been honored to play with the St. Luke's blah and has shared the stage. And to me, just you don't have to make fun of my bio, by the way. <laughs> I'm oh, just kidding. Loki, come on, man. I'm just <laughs> Well, but I would have thought that you have a team, man. Like, <laughs> you know, you got a team like doing. Okay, I have a team. <laughs> Look, see, Rachel's got a team, right? Loki's got a team. I got 
I got like, you know, my, my me with the misspelling things and going to my wife. Hey, does this do I sound not like a cop when I hey, write that, the- that makes her a part of your team? Right. So, oh, 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 <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. So I guess I'll conditionally take back some of it. I don't know. Anyway, so, so but basically, I just I kind of for my 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 bio is a little bit of a, a reaction to reading sort of these bios that are kind of like like I just know better you know like and I kind of wanted to be real like I was like all right this is this is me if you actually want this if if you want if you want to find out about me this is actually me I wrote this I'm not going to hide behind like a third person thing Mm -hmm. and this is the stuff I think is cool and I would want you to know and hopefully you like it you want to hire me or you want to like you know, whatever you want to find out of me, whatever. Right. Like, but I just didn't want it. I didn't want it to sound like I was already in a system, in a system that I don't necessarily feel like participating in a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I love living vicariously through Earl's posts because (laughs) like I'm literally not allowed to post that kind of a post. I mean, when I say not allowed, I mean, you know, obviously I've chosen to make certain compromises in my life that I want to have a team that, I mean, it all comes down to the artistic. I want to have certain artistic experiences in order to be hired to do those gigs. I have to have a certain type of image and reputation in order to have that image and reputation. I have to have a t- certain team behind me and the, that team is going to quit if I post like Earl does. So <laughs> that, in order to make the music I want to make, this is, the, this is the rules of the game. And Every time I'm feeling angst, I just go and read some Earl posts and I feel all better. Well, Rachel, among the compromises that you have not made is remaining engaged uh, with metal as a violinist. Um, And this album that's just come out, you know, I think it really brilliantly explores some of that, uh, the Venn diagramming of the two so-called genres of classical and metal. Uh, I want to start with you. I wonder from your perspective, what are uh, some of the big things that these two seemingly opposing aesthetics have uh, in common that people may not think about every day? Yeah, well, first, let's remember that um, these are umbrella terms, each, uh, you know, classical has you know, countless varieties from many centuries and countries and, you know, chamber music to symphonic music to whatever. And metal also has a million sub-genres and sub-sub-genres at this point. And so, you know, some people might think, oh, metal, that's like those hair bands from the 80s playing glam stuff. No, you know, we're talking about the more extreme genres that were never on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that stuff, the more sophisticated metal, if I can use say that, um, those that those subgenres were very influenced by classical. Mm-hmm. A lot of the players, uh, you know, Earl and I know a lot of these guys. You know, they they are extremely um, inspired by classical, practice classical, listen to classical, etc. And so, um, actually, in a way, it's very organic to come full circle and now have classical inspired by metal and you know. Classical has been inspired by everything you can think of. My last concerto album before this one was by the Syrian composer Malek Jandali, and the music sounds like Arabic mixed with classical, but not crossover, right? I mean, we're just talking about classical incorporating stuff with, you know, so many 
um, hundreds of composers and or even thousands incorporating elements of jazz. And then, of course, traditional music like Bartok with Hungarian, Dvorak with Czech. So metal was just waiting to happen, long overdue. But it you know had to be the right person who really knew good metal um, to and good classical <laughs> to be able to do that. But um, you know the reason that metal has been so inspired by classical for so long is that classical is actually one of the genres that goes to the edge. Whether mm-hmm. you're talking. Bombast of you know Mahler symphonies and Stravinsky and you know all the obvious things and just um, the emotional scope and the intensity that so much of it carries um, and you know we're not just talking about loud and crashy it always annoys me when there's some playlist of um, you know metal classical and they use some umlauts and they put things like <laughs> lightning polka thunder lightning polka to a real metalhead is just a cheerful, happy, happy kind of tune. It's like, right. okay, it's loud and crashy, but it's not at all metal. Um, metal is about darkness, and that can be the slow movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony um, sure. is more metal than than that, right? I mean, so um, just having that, that dark aesthetic, and um, yeah, I think it just makes such total sense and um but then the use of the instrument as well um you know guitar players were very specifically inspired by a lot of the violin virtuosity coming from um well gosh i mean one time i was hanging out with alice cooper's guitarist carrie kelly and he was like hey i'm really into that um free paganini stuff like locatelli and tartini and <laughs> you know, like they know their stuff <laughs> and um you know all those licks got incorporated into the guitar stuff and then um you know all of that coming back around um, to playing metal on the violin, which is actually just a recycling of violin music, but then that more extreme stuff, doing things that the violin hasn't previously done and, and Earl creating things that the orchestra has never done before, like blast beats com- completely acoustically with no drum kit or anything. And so it's mm-hmm. it's been an amazing experience to be part of this process of literally breaking new ground in classical music and the thing that's been most gratifying is to see listeners both that when it's been performed and now on album listeners who aren't familiar familiar with metal and just hear it as a piece of contemporary classical music and are like whoa that is like no other violin concerto i've ever heard in my life um but in a good way you know what i mean like they're saying it like this is amazing and it's like nothing else that exists you mentioned Tartini. Uh, one of his works actually inspired the title of this show. I'll let the folks listening connect those dots. That can be the little Easter egg for <laughs> for people. But um, but Earl, I, I wanted to uh, come to you. You know, when I was maybe I guess I was 16 years old. Somehow I can't remember. Uh, I was introduced to the band Evanescence, and I heard them cover a song by Corn, which you know got me going down the rabbit hole, and and that's how I got into the the genre, love them or hate them. That that's how I came to it. You know, I, I wonder, Earl, if you could speak to how you came to it again, considering you're very much within the classical game, conservatory trained. Where where and how did metal come into the picture? So for me, it was a little schizophrenic. Uh, I grew up in uh, Belrose, Queens. Uh, which it was and still is a, a working class neighborhood. At the time when I was growing up, it was all Irish Italian, uh, except for me. And um, now it's now it's actually mostly Indian subcontinent in Belrose, hmm. Queens. But um, but still a working class neighborhood. But um, so when when I was growing up, all my friends were into hardcore punk, 
and heavy metal. That was like the general, like of all the kids around the neighborhood. That's what we were all sort of listening to at the time. So um, I grew up listening to that stuff too. Cause I like, you know, you'd kind of walk out and like, you know, you'd hang around with your friends and this is what is in, but this is what's blasting through everybody's sort of stereo. It's like the new biohazard tape or whatever, you know, like, or, or anthrax or, you know, sort of whatever thing. a tape and, is, whatever a tape is. <laughs> I had anthrax tapes. <laughs> I was, so when I was a young boy, I listened to the tapes. It was a splendid invention. Anyway, so, so uh, yeah, you know, um, so we would go, uh, I was like, how old? I think I was 13 when I went to my first uh, hardcore show. And it was in a church basement. And uh, the band was called No Redeeming Social Value. Um, nice. And uh, yeah, and I, I was, a, you know, a, a kid. And I had never experienced this kind of cathartic, power and i was already you know i think it was a an outlet for all like i was you know like the sort of the rage and the boredom and the nihilism that kind of you know comes along with being a 13 year old american kid in sort of working class suburbia uh you know so it was just this explosion of like the pit erupted right i actually got punched in the face first show ever i got punched in the face by a sharpie skinhead I don't know if you guys know what a Sharpie skinhead is. A sharp, a sharp stands for skinheads against racial prejudice. So these were like the like skins. Also, they, they evolved from like, you know, working class England. And again, I don't want to get into it too much, but typically with, you know, you either, you know, with working class neighborhoods, you either have super right wing or super left wing. Like, yeah. It, it tends to go one of the two directions. You don't really have a lot of moderates in in like when when people start thinking of political thought or like how how their attitudes and mores kind of develop. Um, I don't want to paint too big of a brush, but I would say I feel I feel comfortable saying that that's kind of a broad brushstroke that like when you have these kinds of things in a neighborhood like this, it either goes really conservative or really left. So. Yeah. There, there were, uh, you know, so there were a lot of sharps at the show and this dude just punched me in the face. But it was, you know, it was an accident, you know, and he was just like, oh, sorry. And then you know, he picked me up. He's like, you're right. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. But, <laughs> you know, um, but I loved it. I don't know what that says about me getting hit. And that says you're metal. <laughs> <laughs> you're so metal. <laughs> oh, but back in the day, actually, that, that's a punk show. But back in the day, the metalheads and the punks were not friends mm. at all. Like that was definitely a big divide too. like the long hairs versus like the, the you know, the skinheads and like whatever. Like that was like, I know it sounds silly uh, to, you know, like all these little minutia things of a subculture, right? Because it all kind of sounds loud and, you know, <laughs> but that was the thing, you know, uh, it was, it was, it, you know, it, it kind of cha changed me forever. Like it was like the best out, um, the best, out the best catharsis that I could that I've ever really experienced even now as you know middle-aged 46 year old guy <laughs> Rachel uh, but before we get into dependent arising um you know one of the other 
commonalities between so-called classical and metal that I've been thinking about in preparation for this is what many perceive as a lack of diversity. I mean, does metal have that similar issue to classical in your view? I don't think it's, yeah, I mean, I, this always bugs me, honestly, that there was a great doom band in the scene for many decades called Iron Man. I, Earl did, I mean, Slash is obviously black. I didn't listen to <laughs> doom, but I know Suffocation from New York City, death metal band, black dudes, great. You know, obviously you have the Bad Brains, legendary. Oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, um, but it's there. there's definitely, well, Rachel, I, I'm sorry, I just, I interrupted you. Um, no, I, no, no, I wanted you to. I, I, I was going to say that I think that there is that conversation. And I think um, among certain, I think I'm going to, again, more broad brushstrokes, which I kind of apologize for. But I think metal is, at its origins, white working class music. You know, but of obviously from the blues. So it's like black first and then kind of like black first, then filtered through, you know, Birmingham, Birmingham, England, you know. <laughs> white working class so you have this so, so it's generally this and there is that uh i think there is that conflict there is that uh rub because you have blatantly like let's not pretend it doesn't exist there's definitely blatant racist uh nazi nazi Other genres yes yeah. from certain certain genres particularly you know uh black metal from not you know uh I, yes, need to uh, <laughs> I think we got it. Thank you. <laughs> right, right, right. I need to clarify. But like, you know, there's there's definitely that um, conflict for sure. And, um, you know, I think I think there's change. There's a lot. There is change going through metal also partially because of just reflective of me being a weird optimist, uh, you know, more evolution of the genre and a greater understanding, a, a greater greater evolution through our working this whole thing out in the greater society. You do see more representation in metal of, you know, BIPOCs, but it's definitely, I would say it's definitely a thing. It's definitely uh, a conflict, a, a, a thing of discussion. It's, and I love that, you know, metalheads will like, there was a band, my band shared a lineup with them more than once. Iced Earth, Doom Metal Band. They're huge in Doom. You've never heard of them, I'm sure. Um, you know, one of the dudes in there was at January 6th. Most of the metal community um, canceled that band. You know, we've had issues with Pantera's lead singer. I mean, so metalheads are are looking out for behavior for content, you know, even if there's not as much representation among the performers on stage, like we're still thinking of things. And a lot of metalheads are very, very progressive. And a lot of metal bands sing about progressive issues. And, um, you know, like anything else, there's a spectrum. But what's been interesting to me to observe over the decades is gender, actually, which has made clear mm -hmm. progress. Um, now, I happen not to love, I respect, but it's not my cup of tea, the, the girly vocals thing. Like, I don't, listen to metal to get in touch with my feminine side. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So you said effinescence. I was like, okay, they're great, but I'm not turning them right. on. Um, right. but, anyways, um, but, you know, it, my band, you know, the, our drummer was always so annoyed because there was this Valkyries festival in I forget which state. And I was the lead shredder for our band. Right. And, you know, 
front and center, not like I was the bass player or something, no disrespect to bass players, but they were like, oh no, we only mean bands with female vocalists. And it's like, well, wait a sec. And then, you know, we started talking about who are all the great women guitarists over the years and just like, it's so wrong. And there is that, that weird thing still, um, on stage. Yes. And that there are more and more, you know, metal musicians that are women, um, even in the the tribute band scene, actually some amazing, you know, whether you're talking about the iron maidens or, you know, just mm-hmm. all kinds of great Les players. Um, um, yeah. Oh, I love Liz Zeppelin. <laughs> They're awesome. But, um, in the audience. So I used to go to so many shows where I would be like the one non-male in the crowd. Or if there were a couple of other women, they were clearly there as girlfriends and not there as like gender neutral headbangers. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I was like, what's up? Like, I don't think of myself as less like, like uh, what's going on here? <laughs> like, and now like, actually you see many more girls of the younger generations who are liking those really extreme bands and going to the shows. And ha- ha- have you seen this in hardcore? Was it sort of the same evolution? Yeah. Oh yeah. Hardcore. Well, hardcore is more, I think, more politically charged than um than metal i think well, certain genres of metal right yeah I mean, like, i'm talking really about thrash yeah yeah so there but there's definitely that uh the video are uh, the videographer hate five six has done a great job of kind of highlighting more minority hardcore bands and and women fronted uh hardcore bands of squala grind like in the audience when you go would there be girls in the crowd when you were yes. young no, oh. no, no. When I was young, oh no, it was just a bunch of angry boys. Like, yeah, so it was like a bunch of angry boys and me. And I'm like, wait, I don't think I'm that different. Like, where are the other girls? Like, and now they're now there are girls. So like that's awesome. I love yeah, that. No, no, not at all. You're right, 100 percent Um, it was uh, you, Rachel, and in New York, my friend, uh actually she's the, the actor Jessica Pimentel is a is a mainstay of the hardcore scene. And so me and her, we're, we're also both minorities. So it was kind of, you know, like, it's a, it's a thing that the two of us are like, oh, I'm <laughs> like, you know. Rachel, you mentioned this one musician at January 6th. I've just made a note to see, to do some research. I wonder if there are any classical musicians who were there that day. There had to have at least Ooh. been one trumpet player in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a brass player, right? Had to have been, had to have been. <laughs> Loki is not wrong. Oh, he's he not raw. <laughs> but let's get it. Let's get into the album. So, um, first of all, you know, the Shostakovich concerto that's on there has been a piece that I've loved for many, many years. I can tell many stories about, you know, performing in the orchestra of it. Uh, even, you know, I remember for the first time uh, I performed it, I was on the contra part. So really, you know, tapping into that beautiful Pasacalia that's in, you know, anyway, I can talk about that piece of music for a long time. And the composer, you know, before I really got into the work that I uh, am in now of uh, focusing on, you know, expanding the genre. If someone asked me who was my favorite composer, I would instantly say Shostakovich. That was never a question. With that being said, you know, um, I'm always looking these days. I'm always looking beyond and, and looking to expand. Rachel, I wonder from your perspective, as the industry as a whole works on diversity and, you know, pushing the boundaries, why is it still important to platform Shostakovich, considering that he is a historical white male composer from Europe? Well, I mean, why should we throw out great art? You know, um, we still enjoy looking at 
paintings and sculptures from hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's something universal about the human experience. I think there's something important about feeling like we're in touch with the human past. I mean, I'm I'm not objective about this. I, I'm like a geek who loves to read about history. And I'm not talking about World War II. I'm talking about like ancient humans yeah. and, you know, <laughs> like ancient civilizations and, and you know, cultures from wherever. And I don't know. I find... I find humanity fascinating and the choices we've made and the way we've evolved or devolved or whatever's going on. And yeah, I feel like this is important because it's part of our past because our past is important. And that being said, one of the things that really uh, means so much to me about music is that old stuff still feels relevant. Like Mm -hmm. I can go to a concert of medieval music and feel like it moved me in a way that's important for me today. And Shostakovich, obviously, it's from a certain time and place, the Soviet regime and whatever decade. And um, we can't, first of all, as as interpreters, as performers, you know, we can't completely inhabit that. We can only imagine it. But the emotions expressed, you know, fear of fear and and anguish and anger and loneliness and uncertainty and and all of these things, those are universal human experiences, whether it's something coming from our current state of the society in which we live, whether it's something happening in our own personal lives that week or that year. Mm -hmm. And so great music that really captures that um, will net like what yes it's super important and i'm now the parent of a composer so extra important (laughs) Um, you know we need all the new voices and all the new expression and capturing um today but you know why not you know more is more (laughs) the more the better right and so just because somebody else might capture those same emotions and expressions and and create something incredibly moving does that mean we throw out the previous guy? Um, you know, and it's been interesting to see this in rock. You know, I mean, I grew up listening to some of my dad's music and loving the doors and, mm. um, and yet now the next generation is listening to my bands and still listening to those bands. And like, wh- you know, like what do we have to do with 70s, 60s, you know, culture, uh, but yet that music still means something to us. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm not articulating this as well as I wish I were. No, uh, I think that's I, I think that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and and Earl, you know, when I listened uh to the recording of your piece that's on this album, the the dependent arising, the first thought I had in my head was this makes perfect sense. What I'm listening to is not really outside of the scope of what I would consider Shasta Kovian or or whatever, even though you know it is your piece written from this perspective. Was there Shostakovich inspiration there? Or what do you think about uh, the intentionality of pairing your work with a work by Shostakovich? Well, I, I think there is an intentional shostakovich Yeah. <laughs> Not intentional, but um, like you, Shostakovich is one of my favorite composers. Um, I was like, I was also like, I was like around 16 when I first heard him. And uh you know, the eighth quartet and it absolutely blew my socks off, man. Yeah. You know, so like, so that his music has lived with me for a long time. So I think it can't help but find its way into the stuff I do um, because, you know, you just kind of live with it and it kind of is a part of you also. Like I've incorporated that 
and to me also. So it's but it's not on purpose. Um, and uh, you know, I think yeah. So I mean, I it's just I, as to why it ends. I think what the commonalities are is the sort of expression of um, negative psychological states. Mm. And when you're working in a medium like a symphony orchestra or you're working in a medium of, you know, I think it can't help but have certain affinities also to other composers who um, kind of, uh, 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 you know, use those emotions as sort of templates in their writing, like Shostakovich, like Schnitke, or like, you know, like right. uh, the sort of like, you know, what what emotional affect are they expressing? Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, then there there ends up being that kind of commonality. It's like how things it's like, you know, how like certain uh, in, 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 in uh, biology, like certain creatures evolve very similar things to each other, but they're different species. But right. because they live in a similar environment and they have a similar thing and then this is the thing the creature evolves this wing to you know or this this camouflage to protect it from from this predator that is very similar like half a world away something like that so i think that's how you have this kind of um commonality and where well, did and the I title come will... oh sorry go ahead sorry oh i was just gonna say and i hope that Earl's piece will, yeah, I hope that the world will still be around in two or 300 years and that <laughs> yeah. um, Earl's piece will still be heard and be played. And, and um, I believe it'll still have relevance. Earl, where did the title come from? So that is um, actually as a fellow Buddhist, this is, um, this is basically the core uh, tenet. Uh, if you were to like boil Buddhism down, I think into it's like, seed what's the point of it is that it's the term dependent arising it's that mm. nothing exists independently of each other nothing. oh yeah i agree with that fully yeah so we all are affected by our world around us we affect the world around us it's all kind of like a there there's no there's nothing that comes from its own side so to speak so that's that's what the title of of this concerto is. And uh, yeah, to go further along those lines, it's, you know, I actually didn't really realize it consciously when I was writing the thing, but as I kind of like thought of it in post and in preparation to kind of like talk about it, sometimes, you know, like um, sometimes I realized that it's kind of like a not exactly programmatic, but not, it, it's a, it's a little bit, it's kind of like an overview of a person's, death or mm. dying process kind of kind of a thing um and with kind of like the buddhist perspective over it like in terms of accepting certain axioms of buddhist philosophy but it's basically a a a, a kind of an outline of a death wow wow i'm gonna have to chant over that that's deep <laughs> it's been fascinating to read some of these reviews and of course you get the ones where they don't know about metal but are somehow judging earl's concerto based on their lack of knowledge about metal and mm -hmm. then you have the ones that clearly don't quite understand buddhism and are then like deciding whether they believe 
Earl's concerto actually reflects what he says it reflects. <laughs> it's like, what, what is going on here? <laughs> it almost would have been better if it just said concerto number one and then didn't even say what it was about. So, like, just listen to the time. Yeah, some, guy, some guy, like, he, he it was weird because it was like both a very like positive review. This is why I think reviews are just kind of like, that's great that it happens because it's more things, more the music is getting talked about, which is cool. But then at the same time, it's kind of like it reveals way more about the reviewer. Of than course. Yeah. Piece itself. Right. So this one guy was like mad at my titles and he was like mad that like he's like, well, I like it. But, you know, like he just he kind of like he's doing what all these new composers do, which is assign their feelings and assign their meaning to the thing. I don't care about what Manian was thinking about. I don't care. I just wanted to be concerto number one. And why don't you market Marcia Funebre instead of this? So like, like I, you know, because my wife stopped me by the way, but like my whole, I was going to write on it. Cause you know, you don't really interact with, you know, when you're, you know, much better to not interact with the, the person writing the thing that my wife mm -hmm. stopped. But the thought in my mind, I was like, Marcia Funebre. Funebre. I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna write my next piece is gonna be called I fucked Marsha Funebre and she fucking loved it. <laughs> Wait, can we say that on the podcast? Yes, and when you release that piece, you have to come back for us to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and and going back to you know some of my some of the initial reasons I fell in love with Shostakovich, you know, I I was someone who always hated this idea of so-called classical music being separated from the world, especially the world of politics. So, you know, the re uh, Shostakovich making those connections clear was one of the reasons I fell in love with him and his music and and and, and his story. Uh, I wanted yeah, to ask I you. Him oh, up. I, I was just saying, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, whenever I play like a Black Lives Matter piece, right, then people are like, oh, this is such a new trend to have social justice here. It's a part of the tradition. So all I have to go is like Shostakovich's Eighth Quartet, Shostakovich's Bobby R. Symphony. And then I'm like, wait a sec, Haydn's Farewell Symphony was about, you know, like workers' rights. Yep. Creating yep. art is a political act. And do you know, Rachel, you know, I learned from a, a conductor uh, who actually the person who introduced me to Buddhism, uh, he conducted for years in Russia. They do not know that Bobby R. Symphony because of the political implications. If you go to a classically trained musician in Russia, nine out of 10 times, they have never heard of that piece of music. So Whoa. the impact was that big to where, you know, it's continued it's to like, be quelled down. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That is <laughs> but so I wanted, But I wanted to ask you, Rachel, I mean, how did your preparation for Dependent Rising compare to the way that you prepared for the Shostakovich or maybe any other thing that you record? Well, obviously, any standard rep piece versus a brand new piece. Uh, I love how in the opera world, they speak of the first performer of a role as being its creator. Um, I mean, the composer is the composer, but I think mm -hmm. that's kind of a lovely way to think about it. And without taking anything away from the composer, I always have that in mind. Like I'm helping create this as its initial existence that then will be hopefully taken over by many, many others. Um, for many generations to come. But um, yeah, so it's like, okay, there's there's a certain um, duty of care, a responsibility, because like, um, now concertos have survived this, right? The first guy that played the Tchaikovsky 
you know, like, you know, crapped all over it. And yet, you know, the next guy did a good job and it caught on. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if you want to give a concerto a fair, any piece a fair shot at, you know, surviving beyond its premiere, you know, you better try to sell it, try to do a good job, try to, you know, bring it to life in the best way possible. So, yeah. So just trying to, um, you know, make sure that I was convinced by it and doing everything I could to convince others of it while doing my best to honor the composer's intentions, you know, that usual um, combination of you and this other human. Um, in this case, only two, because there's no dedicatee, um, except for me. So there's only two of us in the picture, as opposed to, you know, me, Shostakovich and David Oistrakh trying to all get along. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Earl gave actually some wonderful clues in his piece. I mean, I know this language or these languages, you know, all the ref all the influences in his in his piece. But he also would put certain, and also for the orchestra players, if they care to take the trouble, certain yeah. um, certain bands, certain songs, um, not as anything you know stealing from you know. I mean, it's all original music, but to say, okay, here's where this sort of came from and that's that's really useful i mean brooks scottish fantasy he didn't even put the name of the tunes i had to do like some major research to track down the original fiddle tunes that you know ended up in that concerto and see their original incarnations and you know and earl like handed this to you on a silver platter but it'll be useful for future generations as well to be like oh, okay so that's like dillinger's song blah 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 exactly. and like, you know listen to it and see how he transformed that type of sound um but yeah i mean the usual prep, the boring stuff, right? Fing trying out fingerings. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, thinking of the ebb and flow, the colors. Um, Earl definitely took things to the edge of the possible. So, and I think that was kind of the point is like, I almost can't play this, but I am. And that tension of just execution being part of the emotion of the piece. Um, which, you know, the same thing as a drummer trying to do a blast beat with one hand and almost not being able to do it, but when they do it, it's so cathartic. Um, and then Shostakovich, obviously, you have the um, weight of so many great violinists who have also recorded it. And how do you, you know, make sure that yours holds up, but also not be overly intimidated by, okay, you know, is mine as good as, it's like, no, ultimately, the only thing you have to worry about is, is yours true to yourself and what you believe in and kind of throwing the rest of it out. And it's just you and Shostakovich and nothing else matters. And um, yeah, I mean, just, it was, um, it was recorded um, still during the pandemic. So it was like actually a perfect mm. time to think of dark stuff um, and thinking of, you know, my daughter responding to um, watching January 6th on television and all the fear and all the, you know, just, I mean, there was so much, it was, it was easy to get into that dark place. Let's put it that way. But um, no, it was, it was also just so wonderful to just a piece that I've listened to for so long and loved for so long and performed for so many years to be like, okay, here's what I believe about it. And I hope, hope you all enjoy it. So a different kind of pleasure. Um, and, and it was great to get to do, you know, some of, of both of those kinds of music making. I mean, a, a COVID era recording session is very metal. This rehearsal might kill us, literally, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were pretty sure we were going to survive, but it was just a question of the album, um, whether it would actually, you know, exist because it was like, okay, we have some contingency plans. If we lose one bassoonist, here's what we do. If we lose this mm. person on the admin, here's what, like they had 
probably entire orchestra worth of people like on call for whoever we might have lost. But yeah, there were protocols testing the whole nine yards. Earl actually got COVID right before he was supposed to fly out oh, and wow. would not have wanted to play the music. Even though Tito knew it so super well, we would not have wanted to be in the room recording it without Earl's ears. And so we were like on edge. <laughs> I got better the last possible day that I could fly out. It was actually pretty, uh, at least for me, it was a pretty high drama situation where like, I was like constantly like swabbing my nose, negative, positive, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, like, <laughs> like, like, you know, so uh, yeah, but it all, it, it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and shout out to uh, Tito Munoz, who's, uh, who's worked with us a lot, you know, champion uh, for new music is very important for, you know, also from Queens, by the way. Um, so yeah, uh, always important to, to have conductors in the mix who are interested in this music. Earl, I wanted to pull on a string, uh, pull on a thread that, uh, that Rachel mentioned earlier, the idea of uh, this piece being, you know, at the edge of, you know, what, can be done on a violin. I work with um, uh, early to mid-career composers all the time. And, you know, when we uh, pair them with musicians and orchestras, if something is almost unplayable or just not, you know, naturally laying down, the reaction is always, well, you need to talk to such and such because they would tell you, a clarinet player would tell you that this isn't so possible. The fact that you are trained on the violin, do you feel like that gives you some sort of uh, license to really go there? I mean, if I wrote something that was almost unplayable, I'm sure I would be asked to write something different. <laughs> Sorry, I should clarify. I'm not in, and you know, there are composers who write stuff that's not quite easily playable because they don't know what the heck they're doing. And that is not what I'm talking or people that know that right. they don't know what the heck they're doing like Brahms. And he's like, well, this is what I want. Deal with it. When you walk <laughs> like, this is awkward. And he's like, who cares? Um, but no, everything Earl wrote was totally ergonomic, actually. Gotcha. Totally comfortable. If you played it at half the speed. <laughs> there we go. That's the catch. That's what it was. It's like, okay, this lays well, but I got to do it at what tempo? 240 to the quarter note. <laughs> but See, still, Earl, same, but sa same question. <laughs> Does your being familiar with the violin, you know, play a, it must play a role into how you, you know, have written this. So, um, yes, that's, I love that question, man. That's a actually super dope question. Um, so, okay. How do I, uh, all right. So, um, in short, yes, I do feel as a violinist, I, can't so um one to answer it first i'll tell a very quick story at one of the first rehearsals in phoenix um i it it, it applies to a lesser degree to the string parts in the orc in the tutti also so mm. there were there was a part where i had the violins doing two sixteenths and an eighth dig it up 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 like and it was at a certain tempo probably like 220 something like this. And, um, and I had marked down bows. Now, most string players, when you see the composer mark down bows, they immediately get kind of a little like fussy, you know, they're like, well, you know, well, this is, I don't know who this composer is, but uh, you know, they can't really do it. You know? So like, so, um, the concert master of Phoenix said, I don't know who this composer is, but this is unplayable. Just said, in rehearsal this it's is always the concert master right <laughs> right so but or tito mistress. 
or you know right so you know so tito um and i was watching in the in the in the in the audience in the seats and tito goes would you like to uh the composers happens to be here and uh can you please come up to the to the stage and demonstrate this thing that you wrote so uh rachel uh lent me her violin <laughs> And I did the Boeing for like, I was kind of a jerk a little bit. Like I did it for way longer than it said in the part. And I just did it and faster. I did it longer. I did it long. Yeah, exactly. I did it longer, faster than way longer than it said in the score. And I just didn't say anything. And I handed the violin back to Rachel. And then I just walked back. <laughs> so I mean, that's, uh, that's how you do that, I guess. <laughs> right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is part of it. The reason why um, I, I want to say here that like I actually um, on, a, on a personal level, I don't like difficult for the sake of difficult. Mm -hmm. I don't like it. I, I, when, I, when I hear music that's like this, it actually angers me. Like it makes me. Oh, look, I'm playing some thirds. Aren't I impressive? Right. <laughs> right. Like for, you know, Monday and Tuesday in the space of Saturday. Like, why? You know, like, I don't like this. But like, because for me, uh, it's very important that like you have a, a, a consistent, like, like emotional reason as to why you do something. Why? Why is it like this? So for me the reason why it like it's barely possible for Rachel also is because it's that anxiety. It's like, it's like the emotions are so like in your face, like, and it's so crazy and intense that like, I actually want you to feel like this too, when you're doing it. Like, it's not like you can't just like relax. Mm -hmm. and, and so you want to stress your players. So they feel really stressed, so they can really express the emotion of being stressed. <laughs> I mean, I, I, she's now she's kind of taking the piss a little bit out of me, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> but that, well, that, that is, yeah, that's a little bit of it, Loki. Is is that does that? Is, I don't know. Oh does yeah, that make sense? oh definitely, yeah. definitely. How can folks uh, check out this recording and uh, and buy the album? Oh, yeah. Buying it. Yeah. What a concept. Um, <laughs> I'm always promoting actually, buying albums. Yeah. Actually, I do want to um, give a shout out to Sadie Records, the amazing, innovative label. They've been doing, you know, diverse recordings for decades, you know, before other people jumped on the bandwagon. Um, and they're they're all about capturing their artists artistic vision. Um yeah, Sadie Records, if you C-E-D-I-L-L-E Records, if you go to their website, by the way, even if you aren't buying it, even if you're streaming it, we love you. Um, and I really want to um, highlight Sadie's website because they have the complete PDF of every single album booklet of their entire recording library on their website, on each album's album page, where you also get, you know, the sound clips and the reviews and all the usual stuff on an album page, but you also get, so, and Earl and I both wrote, you know, essays for this booklet. We want people to read them <laughs> as they're listening to our music. So, um, you know, I, 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 so frustrated sometimes by streaming, not because of like the economics of it, um, but also because of like, I don't feel like like a, an album product used to be the text plus the the audio. And mm -hmm. now people get the audio without the text. And in classical, I feel like you lose so much by not 
reading the history, the thoughts, the the whole thing. So yeah, so Sadie Records, you can buy it from their site. You can buy it in um, high res download, whatever H Flack or whatever the heck it's called. And of course, you can buy it from all the usual Amazons and wherever people buy, you know, archive music. And it's on all the streamers and all that good stuff. And I, I'm just going to second what you said about those uh, CD booklets. I mean, that's really how I cut my teeth um, as a radio host. You know, I wouldn't air anything if I hadn't read the CD book back to front so that I could really, you know, offer listeners, you know, what I thought was most important or, or the most important context. So thank you for um, highlighting that. I wanted to close. I wanted to get uh, both of your ideas on where we're going as a so-called genre in classical. I think, you know, this uh, album is a, a really great artifact in a much broader journey. I wonder if each of you could speak to, you know, your hopes for, you know, what you're creating after we're long gone, 200, 300 years from now. What are we working toward? I'll, I'll start with you, Earl. Hmm. I think um, I'd like to see more the i'd like to see less um conservative in the conservatory i guess mm. Mm. i think i'd like to see more understanding that uh, speaking of the dependent arising that it's not classical music doesn't exist in a vacuum and that there's it's not you know the 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 that it's not just its thing sure that's an identity but there's a whole world out there of a lot of cool stuff and a lot <laughs> a lot of a lot of beautiful things and a lot of beautiful um art being made that um can and should be a part and incorporated into um, this kind of music making. Yeah, your thoughts, Rachel? Gosh, you know, it's um, being a parent of, a, of an up-and-coming young musician, I'm getting such an interesting picture of the world right now because among my daughter's age group, she's 12, yeah, there's, there's this disturbing trend of technique being emphasized over musicianship. You know, there are these very popular violin YouTubers. And it's always about, you know, who's younger playing a harder piece faster. And, you know, all of my, my daughter's peers are posting, you know, videos of themselves playing scales or virtuoso pieces. And my daughter posts improvs and like, she's all about just expression. And, and I've never heard these YouTubers go, wow, let's, let's highlight this thing that really moved us. And so it's impossible to predict where things are going, but where I hope things will go is that with, and, you know, and certainly from the influence of, I mean, the world has improved, right? Early music is now socially acceptable. Um, it's okay for a violin soloist to be known to play something other than classical, you know, mm -hmm. Nigel Kennedy able to stay in the closet being a jazz violinist. And now you have, um, what's her name? Who's a bluegrass violinist. And that's actually like a, like a great thing. Um, so that's been such an improvement. And I hope that, um, creativity and open-mindedness and self-expression, you know, without, you know, losing the technique, of course you, you need to be clean and in tune and things like that, but that's, 
not the end itself. It's just a means to an end. Because if you're being expressive and then you're out of tune, it kind of is like taking a beautiful painting and throwing splotches of mud on it. But other than that, you know, like to really get kids to to open up and and whatever their paths to doing that, whether it's listening to metal that to make them more expressive, like happened for me, or whether it's fiddling or Im- improvising or listening to this or that, like whatever it takes. Um, I think classical does have something special to say, all the centuries of it, all the different people who created it. There's so much great stuff there. And what we really need are people to, you know, bring their own unique individual person out. That's why diversity is so important because if everybody's not doing this, we're losing the potential great interpretations out there. Um, but, you know, to have this great music being created and then this great music being played and for everybody to have the, the goal in mind that the reason we're doing this is to express ourselves, to offer this to each other, to to heal, to uplift, to disturb if that's what's necessary. And that it's just all about the emotions and using those emotions to connect our humanity and and hopefully make the world a better place. That sounds trite, but I think we, we have to believe that or why are we here like even existing? bit more there from Earl Manian's Dependent Arising. Huge shout out to both Rachel and Earl. It was such a pleasure to have this dialogue, and I'm really grateful to have gotten a chance to share it with y'all today. All right. So I have a brief little triloquy here. Last week, I mentioned that I've been reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. Please learn more about your America and the people in it by reading this book. I know that a lot of people have preconceived notions about who they think Malcolm X was as a human being. That goes for black folks and non-black folks alike, you know, but reading this book has really given me a perspective into who this human being was that I didn't always have. So I definitely recommend. Anyway, this has all been in preparation for me to go see X, the life and times of Malcolm X at the Metropolitan Opera uh, this next week. So I went and looked at tickets and found a pair for me and Dell that total up to about $300. It's not chump change, at least not for me. Maybe I'm a brokey, but $300 is not chump change for me. But I'm, I'm making the sacrifice to go, you know, support this, this piece of music. But then I started thinking to myself, that's $300 that I can give, I don't know, to my Buddhist organization or to donate to the Shabbat Center up here in Washington Heights that actually celebrates and preserves the legacy of Malcolm X year round and not just in, you know, single performances. Now, on the other hand, I'm reading my social media feed and seeing a lot of composers who are urging people to go spend this money because we want the Met to know that music by black composers is also viable in those sorts of spaces. But then I go back to my other mind and think, 
Why do we need Black music to be something that they approve of? Why do we need to prove the worth of our stories as told musically to institutions that only decided to platform us after over a century of being in operation? You know, I don't know if I have answers to those questions yet. On one hand, I'm rooting for everybody Black. So to all of my friends and members of the Triloquy family who are actually on stage for this production, I'm wishing them good luck and offer my full support. Same to Anthony and Talani Davis for their work in actually writing and developing the story. There's so much blackness that went into this, and I want to celebrate that and support that in any way I can. But then again, it would be so great to see this work performed and funded in its own community, right? I mean, that that means spaces up here in upper Manhattan um, where Malcolm X actually uh, tread and spoke and, and had impact, Harlem, Washington Heights, and, and those areas. It would be nice to see some engagement there too. But then, you know, I, I know this is very flip-floppy. I go back to thinking that it's the people downtown at Lincoln Center that need this more than the black folk up here in upper Manhattan. So, ugh, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. A part of the experience for me to go down to the Met um, that I'm also considering is seeing other black people who have decided to support this show and, you know, engage in dialogue with somebody up at the bar during intermission or whatever, just to see what people are thinking. But, you know, all in all, I have a lot of dissonance around purchasing these tickets and, you know, getting dressed up in my African finest and uh, <laughs> going to sit down at the Met. I don't know. Do you have 300 plus dollars to go watch an opera? Would you make that financial stretch for the Met Opera or would you go out to a nice dinner or uh, put that money toward a vacation somewhere instead? Are we so-called Negroes, as Malcolm would have said, making progress in the arts by using our dollars to beg for the affirmation of predominantly white institutions? Hmm. I have a few ideas, but I'll leave you to come up with your own <laughs> responses to those questions. Thanks, as always, for spending the time with me. It's a pleasure to bring this show to you each and every week. You know, I'm, I'm getting later and later in the week, you know, as far as when I can put it out, but I'm putting it out thanks to y'all support. So I really, really appreciate it. I'll talk to y'all again in about seven days, but until then, do what you can to shake up this classical music industry and, uh, and uh, bring some different dialogues to the front by any means necessary, as Malcolm would have said, right? <laughs> thanks y'all. Peace. Peace.